Well, let's do it. Come on. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, thanks for joining us this Friday on the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. You've got questions. We've got answers, what we do every Friday. If your question is appropriate for Christian radio, then it's it's good. It's 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 not off limits. So everything is on the table. Anything you want to ask me about biblically related or anything we ever talk about on the line of fire. If you differ with me, if you want to challenge your position, what here we are ready for your calls. 866-348-7884. Can you believe that we are at the end of 2018 and about to enter 2019? I was in prayer this morning and I just tweeted out something very basic, very simple, but I, I was so gripped with it. Some thoughts for believers in 2019. Prepare for intense conflict. Prepare for spiritual warfare. Prepare for God to move. I I have this tremendous sense of anticipation, more intense than normal. A tremendous sense of anticipation of the ongoing spiritual conflict and national conflict, which will deepen. I mean, who cannot see that? Who cannot feel that? That's so obvious. But the sense of, of God moving of the Holy Spirit being poured out, just just what I saw so clearly, just like a flood of God's work and God's Spirit touching people across the land. So let's believe God for that together. Let's prepare our own hearts. Let's do what we know how to do on a daily basis. And let's understand that in Jesus, God is for us, not against us. He desires to work out His purposes in us and through us. He, He does not want to beat us down and destroy us. He wants to see us. If we're not right with him, he wants to see us come to repentance and and get right with him. If we are right with him, he wants us to be aligned with his purposes so that he can work through us. And when he works through us, we are truly wonderfully blessed. All right. We go to the phones. 866-34-TRUTH. We start in Orlando, Florida. Stephen, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. What's going on? Everything's good here, man. Um, so my question is about the usage of the word um, lamo in uh-huh. Isaiah fifty three eight. And yes, I, sir. I guess the objection would be that it's mainly a plural um, or used for plurality. And I know yep. the objection or the defense would be that it's used in Isaiah forty four um, as a singular sense. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know the verse. But you know what you're doing. You know what I'm talking about. Of course, sure, sure. So let me yeah. let me explain this to to our our yeah. uh, listeners and viewers. One of the Jewish objections that's brought against Isaiah fifty three referring to Jesus is that it's actually referring to the nation of Israel or the righteous in Israel, and that there are a couple of plural pronouns that are used that indicate or prepositional phrase with a pronoun that indicate the plural. So. Isaiah 53, verse 8, is one of the verses where it says, uh, He's cut off from the land of the living. 
which is often taken to mean for the transgression of my people, a stroke for them. And the first answer that you can give, Isaiah 53, 8, uh, is that uh, uh, earlier in Isaiah 40, uh, chapter 44, I believe, verse 16, it speaks of a man making an idol and he bows down to it. Lamo normally means uh, to them for them. But it can also mean to it for it, as in Isaiah forty four fifteen. I'm sorry, uh, he makes uh, an idol, God Lamo, and he bows down to it. So Isaiah himself uses it in the singular, but I don't believe that's the usage in Isaiah fifty three eight. I believe the right interpretation is that the servant is smitten for them, mipesha me for the transgression of my people, nega a stroke Lamo for them. So the servant takes the penalty, takes the stroke, takes the beating for them. And based on a reading from, from a Qumran manuscript, Dead Sea Scroll manuscript, it's very possible that instead of nega, it's actually nuga in Hebrew. So he was smitten for them. So either way, I have zero problem with for them because it's speaking about for the people. He is smitten for the people. And if you said, no, no, it, it has to refer to him, well, then it can refer to him. Lamo can mean to him, to it, as in 4415. So this, you know, we, we dealt with this objection in volume three of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. It's really, really easily refuted. It's one of these things people just hold to because they're used to it. But I, I find zero substance in the argument whatsoever. Right, right. Okay, so you're saying that in the, the Dead Sea Scroll that it, that Isaiah 53, 8 is talking about singular? No, no, I'm saying that word? instead of the word nega, which is a stroke, uh, you know, being smitten, that the Dead Sea Scrolls could well read it as a verbal form, nuga, which means he was smitten. So he was smitten lamo for them. So it's a different reading. Instead of nega, it could well be nuga. So again, what it would mean is that the servant is smitten for them, for the people. So it's not Lamo that's read differently. It's Nega that's read differently. Okay. The word before Thank it. You. Okay. Thank you very much. You are very welcome. And all that is in volume three of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. 866-34-TRUTH. And uh, let me just thank you for your calls and your questions. I get such joy out of taking your calls, answering your questions. And a lot are, are getting information, biblical interpretation, etc. But some, you may want to differ with me on a point. That's, that's no problem. I won't get upset over it. I, I, won't, I won't feel threatened by it. All right? So we go to the phones in Forestville, Oklahoma. Eugene, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. It's nice to speak with you. How are you doing, sir? Doing very well. Thank you. Yes, sir. And so, um, just a just a quick, you know, sum it all up. Um, there's a theologian I know. He lives in Kansas, and I just asked him, you know, how can I um, discern what's of God and what's not when it comes to the supernatural things that happen throughout the charismatic movement? Mm-hmm. And I told him of an experience I had, um, quote unquote, slain in the spirit. And as you and I know, that's not exactly something you explicitly see in scripture. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, you know your opinion. Is this something that seems of God? And I told him the fruit that happened. I was weeping. I was 
asking for forgiveness. It just all seemed of God. But he said the only thing, the only issue he really takes when he sees things like that is that he said it seems to contradict Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, where it says that God gives us the spirit of self-control. And, of mm-hmm. course, there are other scriptures that say, you know, you were supposed to walk in self-control, that the Holy Spirit gives us that spirit of self-control. And I'm wondering if you can help me better understand what is Scripture actually talking about when it says we have a spirit of self-control? And do you think, of course, there are some things that happen throughout the charismatic circles that are clearly not of God, more of the flesh and more of of acting in complete chaos. But I'm saying, Mm -hmm. do you think when you see people who are slain in the spirit, does that seem to contradict um, 2 Timothy 1.7? Um, no, no, no. Like and I'm just wondering again. Yeah. Um, uh, what does it mean to walk in self-control? I've never truly understood it, sir. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. It has zero to do with being overwhelmed in the presence of God. Otherwise, you could say Daniel has no self-control in Daniel 10 when he collapses as someone dead in the presence of the Lord, or Ezekiel when he's overwhelmed by the presence of God in Ezekiel one through three and he sits devastated. Or John, in Revelation, the first chapter, when he falls at Jesus' feet as a dead man. I don't care if you fall backwards, sideways. The point is, you could say they're, they're, all of them didn't have self-control. No, that is absolutely, <laughs> completely unrelated. Second Timothy 1.7, which I'm looking at, uses one Greek word for self-control. It can also have the nuance of sound judgment. I, I, would, I would go over instead to Galatians, the fifth chapter, where Amen. it mentions the fruit of the Spirit. And, and one of the things listed, of course, is self-control. And in, in point of fact, what that's talking about is moral discipline. What that's talking about is that you control your tongue, that you control your appetite, that you say no to the lusts of the flesh. That's self-control. That when someone's trying to provoke you and goad you to get into a fight, that you exercise self-control. When you're frustrated with someone, that you don't speak to them in, in, in anger, and, and when when you're tempted to to download porn on your computer, that you say no to it. When when uh, you're you're fasting and your your favorite meals put before you, say no thanks, I'm fasting. So when it speaks about self control, there that that's what it's talking about in, in Galatians five twenty three in terms of fruit of the spirit. Uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with Moses in in Hebrews nine. Uh, or, or Moses going back, quoting from Deuteronomy 9 in, in Hebrews, where Moses is, is shaking with fear because of the, the holy presence of God. Moses, where's your self-control? It's got nothing to do with it. I mean, it's the, it's the craziest thing that, that people would even mention that. So when, when I'm prayed for and the Holy Spirit overwhelms, look, I've prayed for many people. And when I prayed for them and they never heard of being slain in the spirit, they didn't know anything about it. They fell flat on their face because people say, if it's really God, they'll fall on their face, not on their back. Okay. I've seen them fall flat on their face and lay there. So were they lacking in self-control any more than John was when he fell flat on his face in the presence of God? Or in John 18, when Jesus said, I am he to the Roman soldiers and they fall backwards. That's that's not self-control. (laughs) Self-control is moral discipline. Okay, thank, thank you for the answer, sir. I'm going to record this video and 
and go over it and, and look at those scriptures again. And uh, by the way, I, I am praying for your team. I remember you you talked you spoke about the, the recent loss you guys have, and um, yes. you guys are you guys are all in my prayers, and I really appreciate all the work you go you do, Doctor Brown. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Eugene. And and of course, in Authentic Fire, I, I deal with that issue about self control and what it's actually speaking of there. Uh, so you know what's interesting though, the way you judge the fruit of Someone's saying, well, I was prayed for, slain in the spirit. I don't know what to make of that. I don't see it in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't say it couldn't happen or it's unscriptural. You look at the fruit. You look at the lasting fruit in someone's life who's had these types of experiences, and you see what type of fruit it produces. That's the way you judge that. If it's not explicit in the Bible, either way, as Jonathan Edwards said, we ought not to limit God where he hath not limited himself. Hey, Thank you, Eugene, for thinking of our team. Would you please pray this Sunday? There's going to be a local memorial service for our beloved Caleb, who's with the Lord now. December 21st, killed in a car accident, but alive in the presence of God. I'm trusting some of his friends will be there who aren't walking with the Lord. And of course, his family, they need the ongoing grace of God. Please pray December 30th, this Sunday. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, maybe you've got a a break here, a family break, uh, vacation, day off because of the holidays, New Year coming, and you can call where you normally couldn't call. Phone lines are open, 866-348-7884. For everyone in the greater Charlotte, North Carolina area, two weeks from tonight, you are welcome. I extend a heartfelt invitation to you to a debate I'm going to be having with Dr. Dale Tuggy, answering the question, is the Father alone the only true God? And not that exact wording. I I think I added an extra word, extra alone or only. But either way, uh, he denies the Trinity. He denies the deity of Jesus. And he and his people reached out to me or through his people to debate me. So they're flying in to do the debate January 11th at Fire Church, which is right near Charlotte Motor Speedway, 7 in the evening, and it's free of charge. All right? So find out more. Go to AskDrBrown.org. Click on itinerary to find out more. Uh, We go to Anne in Los Angeles. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Um, I have a question on behalf of a very dear family member. And this is her question. If God is saying, love me or I will torment you for eternity, isn't he a psychopathic character rather than a loving God? Yeah, if you, if you phrase it like that, uh, absolutely, that would seem uh, egotistical, megalomaniacal, psychopathic. Uh, in natural terms, it would absolutely seem that way. Since we see God's love expressed, the same Bible that calls us to love God and that tells us of the penalty of of judgment, that same God sends his son to die for us sacrificially. So if you want to know the character of God, look at Jesus. And it's one of sacrifice for us. It's one of giving us the opposite of what we deserve. It's one of saying, you sinned and deserve judgment instead of... I'm going to put that penalty on my son so you can be free and you will receive the reward 
of his obedience. So when we see the character of God revealed, he's unbelievably loving, unbelievably merciful, unbelievably long-suffering, and therefore this picture of him as being some kind of maniacal despot can't work. So what we have to ask is, is God showing us the path to life? Is God showing us that the path to life is loving him? And as we love him, we find the path to life. And by rejecting him, we go the way of self-destruction. Is it his mercy that's calling us to do that? You know, many kids think their parents are just killjoys. They think the church is just anti-fun. Why are you trying to take away my fun? Why can't I go out and hang out with my friends and party? You know, and you explain, well, because there are bad consequences to it. So you say, look, do what we're saying and you won't be punished. It's not because we don't want to, it's not because we're we're hanging them over a a fire and going to hurt them. The punishment is a deterrent from doing wrong and the rules are there to keep them on the path of life. So when, when we love God and God doesn't coerce us or force us, when we love God, we find the path of life and blessing when we reject him we go the way of death and destruction. So it's not a matter of God threatening and to torment you forever if you don't love me, as much as God saying, here's the path to life, here's the path to death, which will you choose? And then because we always choose wrong in ourselves, he sends his son on that path of death for us so that we can find the path of life. So I would just say to your friend, if that was the character of God, why did he send Jesus to die for us? Why didn't he just laugh from heaven and say, ah, you're all going to rot and I'm going to enjoy it. No, instead he sends his son to die for what we did so that we can be forgiven. That's the opposite of a psychopath. Yes, yeah. I think that her issue, as she expressed it to me, was mostly that the eternal torment aspect of it. um, Uh, Understood. Uh, So I I would reply in this way. Uh, I would say, look, if in fact we are eternal souls— if God created us to be eternal, then if we reject him forever, then we're lost forever. In other words, that's just the consequence of our actions. You can say, look, there's some people who believe that the Bible speaks of being cut off or destroyed, that the final punishment is that we lose eternal life and we are cut off and destroyed. So what I would say is, look, if you're trying to honor the Lord, just know that the same God who sent Jesus into the world is not a monster. And whatever he does is absolutely right and good. So that if we were standing there, we would say, and and our heads were clear, we affirm the rightness of what you're doing. So if, if she's trying to follow the Lord and, and she's hung up over the issue of eternal torment, say, look, if we are eternal souls, then this is the consequence of our rejecting God that we, we live on forever separated from him you can say others believe that the punishment is we're destroyed and cut off, but either way, following God is the path to life, rejecting him is the path to death. If she can wrap her mind around that a little bit, maybe that can help her accept the, the full truth of who God is and what he does. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you. Sure thing, Anne. Very much so. 866-34-TRUTH. And we go to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Jacob, welcome to the line of fire. Uh, Brother Michael, I appreciate your show so much and everything you've done and uh, your work. It's just, it's uh, really good for the building up of the body and the education. I appreciate that. Um, 
my question is concerning the body and concerning unity within the body. And um, I'm troubled because my heart is broken for people that are sitting in pews across the world and um, who, who have a form of godliness but deny the power, and they, just like Jesus said in Matthew 7, they call out, Lord, Lord, but he never knows them. Mm-hmm. And I, and I want to know what is wrong with the doctrine that's maybe being taught, or if it, is, it, is it the doctrinal issues? Because I know there's lots of doctrinal issues and certain, certain issues, like, for example, the last debate you did with uh, Hernandez, uh, the Hernandez group and... Uh, yeah, Sonny Hernandez. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, Sonny Hernandez. And, and yeah, they, they don't believe anyone else is saved, so they have an exclusive doctrine. And is there a doctrine? I mean, is the doctrine of Jesus Christ, it seems like it's exclusive. He said the path is narrow, and he said many are going to call out to me and say, Lord, Lord, but and, they, and even people who did works, and, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so my heart breaks for the for the people that are lost. I want to know how do we balance the message of the gospel that is narrow, but at the same time not making people feel that are saved, make them feel like they're not saved. Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question, Jacob. First, as far as Senator Hernandez and, and those of like heart that say if you're not a particular type of Calvinist, you're not saved at all. Hey, I, I appreciate Sonny's zeal. And I appreciate that he he wants to see the purity of the gospel. Obviously, I'm, I know he's wrong in terms of excluding many true believers from the body. Then on the other hand, you have folks that want to be loving and tolerant and say everybody gets in, right? So ultimately, if we are saying salvation is only through Jesus, that's narrow. That's narrow in that you're saying Muslims need to turn and put their faith in him. Traditional Jews need to turn and put their faith in him. Hindus, Buddhists, atheists. Everyone needs to come to God through him. That is extraordinarily exclusive uh, in terms of everybody else. You're saying that he's the only way. That's, that's a big statement already. That being, yeah, said, I, yeah. that being said, the door through Jesus is, is infinite. And in other words, anyone can come in any generation by, by looking to God through the cross and be saved no matter what their background. I don't, I don't mean it's infinite forever that they can fix it in the world to come. Of course not. But there is a multitude, according to biblical descriptions, a multitude that no one can number from every tribe and, and kindred and tongue, every ethnicity. And we know that in the book of Revelation, it mentions an army of 200 million. Yet when it speaks of God's family, it says it's a multitude no one can number. So we know there will be a vast number of people who are saved. And what I do my best to do, Jacob, is major on the majors, major on the fundamentals of the gospel, and say those who adhere to this are in, those who reject this are out. And I let God judge the rest of the details. For a lot of people, the problem is nominal Christianity. In other words, they're just raised in a church setting, but they've never really come to know the Lord or believe the message. In other settings, it's a defective message. But here, I'll, I'll give you an example of something, Jacob. I, I'm debating Dr. Dale Tuggy, God willing, two weeks from today, and he is anti-Trinitarian. He denies the deity of Jesus. 
I don't see how you can deny the deity of Jesus and be a true believer. I don't see how you can just believe that he is, say, a glorified man and be a true believer. I believe Let me he ask is a quick, an, follow, a quick follow yeah, up again, please. But yeah, j- so, just to clarify this, yeah. I, God knows if if he's saved or not. But in my understanding, he's rejecting a fundamental of the gospel. The question is, where do we draw that line? So to me, it's the, the most basic fundamentals of the faith. That's where we draw the line. And every other issue, which is secondary, we don't draw the line there. Okay, your follow-up. Go ahead. Yeah, so it's clear different uh, sects of Christianity have different majors, like the word you like to use, like they have different majors of what they believe is major doctrinal issues right. for for um, for salvation. And so when it comes to, um, like you said, denying the deity of Christ is rejecting the revelation of who God claims to be. So how much of God's revelation even in the small things that might not be major, but how much of God's revelation of someone that they how right, right. So tell you what, yeah. order? Yeah. Stay right, stay right there. Just got to jump in. I'll answer it first thing on the other side of the break. 866-34-TRUTH. Now's a great time to call. We can still get you before the hour is out. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH. So what, today is the 28th, so this makes us our last broadcast of the year, right? Is that right? Uh, no, we got New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve on Monday. Sorry. That's right. New Year's Eve on Monday, of course, and then New Year's Day. So we, we got plenty, plenty of time, plenty of broadcasting time left. All right. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH. So responding to a question from Jacob in Kalamazoo, Michigan, what are the, the most fundamental of the fundamentals that we say if someone denies these things that we, we do not see how they can be saved? So obviously they have to recognize there, there's one God. They're, they're not polytheists believing in many gods or atheists who deny God. They have to recognize that we sin and fall short in his sight and we are guilty and deserve his judgment. That he sent his son Jesus to die for us. A denial of the sonship of Jesus as, as intended in scripture to me is a fundamental denial of, of truth. If you just think he was a glorified man or something, that he died for our sins that he rose from the dead and that by believing in him, we can be forgiven and live a new life. So there's repentance. In other words, living, living a new life, not just continuing the old. Those to me are the, the fundamentals of the fundamentals. And if a Catholic said, I agree with those explicitly and didn't think that salvation came by works. And even if they had a wrong view of the Pope, that wouldn't disqualify them to me. Uh, but if they denied the efficacy of the cross on their behalf, or if they engaged in active worship of Mary as, as to a divine being of some kind, as if she was, I mean, obviously those would be disqualifying. Uh, ultimately, we let God be the judge. But he meets us in various areas of ignorance and, and lack of understanding. But to me, these are the fundamentals of the fundamentals. If someone says, I can follow Jesus and continue to do whatever I want to do and live in sin, uh, disobedience to the flesh, obviously, uh, they're, they're not true believers. If they think they can save themselves somehow, they're not true believers. 
So that to me is the, the most fundamental of the fundamentals, Jacob. But thank you, sir, for, for asking. And, and let me just say this. If I meet someone that holds to those things and says, can we work together for the gospel? If they hold to those things and they have evidence of being a believer in their lives, in other words, they're not saying the words while living in blatant disobedience, you know, worshiping Satan and actively or something like that, then I'd consider that person as a brother or a sister, unless I had evidence to the contrary. Hey, thank you again for asking. We, we got a long way to go to come to the unity of the faith. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Isaac in Gainesville, Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Michael Brown. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, my question is on Isaiah chapter 49. Um, mm-hmm. Something that I, I haven't uh, seen this in person talking to traditional Jews, but something that I've thought about myself is I've seen, I've read your literature about it and how um, this is a key passage in saying that this is someone within Israel who regathers Israel or brings Israel back to God, and not only so, but as a light to the nation. Yes, sir. So one of the things that I thought about is what if this is Isaiah talking about himself? and this can't be applied to the Messiah. Right. So uh, the first thing is there there are many traditional Jews that do understand it like that. There are traditional Jews that understand Isaiah 42 as referring to uh, the Messiah, and Isaiah 49 as referring to the prophet. So when when he's speaking here, he's speaking in the first person. He's not talking about that, that, uh, that one, that servant. He's speaking about himself. So it goes on. So he's saying, uh, listen to me, oh islands, uh, pay attention to me, nations. Uh, the Lord's called me from afar, from, from the womb. So he's talking first person. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. So there are traditional Jews that understand this is referring to the prophet. The reason I would differ is you have parallel language here between Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 42, which to me indicates you're speaking about the same individual. And the scope of the message is such that it goes far beyond anything in Isaiah's actual calling or actual ministry as, as, as you read on. So, so first he's called Israel in that he, he is the, the representative or the embodiment of, of the nation. Um, but as, as we, as we read on, for example, uh, he says, I've labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing and futility at my vindications with the Lord, my rewards with my God. So he seems he's failed in his mission. The Lord says, calls him a servant. The Lord formed him to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. And God says, it's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So uh, how how is that going to apply to the prophet? Uh, to me, that is that is absolutely a verse that can only a- apply to the Messiah. So I just look at the scope of it, and then I compare it to Isaiah 42, and I see the parallel language, and I see it's, it's got to be speaking about the same person there here, just prophetically in the first person. Now, could Isaiah have spoken this at first with reference to himself and his mission and recorded it as such only to realize that God was speaking through him? about the Messiah. Yeah, it could have happened like that. Isaiah 61, 1, where he says, Ruach Adonai Elohim Allah, the spirit of the Lord God's on me because he's anointed me. That's the prophet first speaking about himself, but 
Yeshua takes the words on his own lips in, I, in, in Luke 4 and says, this, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Isaiah may have spoken that initially about his own life and ministry, but when you read the chapter, you see it transcends his own life and ministry and finds fulfillment in the Messiah. Awesome. I have one more question really quickly, if I have time. Sure, sure. Go for it. uh, Different topic. This one is on, I have some friends who are in the International Church of Christ, and they believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've discussed, um, you know, I I can point them to passages like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and, and Romans 3, where it's by faith alone. But they would say that every time Paul is mentioning works, he's referencing Old Covenant works, works of the law. And so even though baptism is a work, they say, one, it's a work of God, and they point to Colossians 2.12. Um, and they say it's, it's part of the New Covenant, and therefore it's not under the condition of uh, work salvation. Oh, baptism is not a work. Baptism is certainly not a work. A, a mm-hmm. work is, uh, I'm going to fast for three months, you know, once a week in order to earn my salvation. A work is, I'm going to keep the Sabbath for, for four straight weeks to earn my salvation. A, a work is, uh, I'll circumcise my son in order to be saved. Those are, those are works where I'm trying to do righteous deeds or things God requires to, in terms of a changed life. Whereas baptism has nothing to do with a changed life. Baptism has no, look, you make a profession of faith with your lips, right? You confess with your mouth, the Lord mm-hmm. Jesus. Is that a work because you're speaking words? No, yeah. no more is baptism a work because you're going down in water. So baptism mm-hmm. is, is, is a mandate, is a command, but it, it is a public confession of faith. It is not the saving act itself. So mm-hmm. look, I, I ran into a guy the other day uh, at a conference and he wanted me to look at something he had written, and he's very meek. And the more we talked, then he's giving me stacks of pages. I wanted to hear from. Him. I said, you know, honestly, I just want to tell you, I'm probably not going to be able to get back to you. And then the more I looked at, it, I said, oh wait, wait, are you telling me that I have to be baptized a certain way in order to be saved? Yeah. And and even though I've been baptized, because I don't believe that, he goes, I don't think you're saved. I said, all right, at least we got to the root of it, buddy. You know, <laughs> I pray the Lord will help you. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it it is. Let me just say this. A lot of times in the church today, we who believe in believer baptism, so not infant baptism, we often don't put sufficient emphasis on it. We're often not sufficiently scriptural. We don't see how much it was immediate, that that was expected, repent and be baptized. Uh, So I, I believe it is essential and it is important, but it is not the means of salvation. Uh, and certainly someone can come to faith was unable to be baptized and that person is genuinely saved. And if someone would, would dare think that if, you know, if you're chained to a wall in, in a prison in China and, and you lead your prison mate to the Lord and then he dies and you were unable to get him in water and you're chained to the wall so you can't, that he, somebody's not saved, that's, that's utterly preposterous. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate it. You are, you are very welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Columbus, Ohio. CJ, welcome to the line of fire. Uh, hello, Dr. Brown. Hello. Hey, I, I just wanted to uh, call with a question about uh, God's discipline. I, yes. was, uh, I was speaking with, a, with an elder who, who had happened to mention, I guess, um, like in reference to Hebrews 12, that God uh, physically disciplines uh, his children. 
Yeah. And so I just I just wanted to kind of uh, clarify if is that biblical and how and 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 if not, how how should uh, believers um, see or understand uh, the discipline of God um, in in their lives or, or or you know how that works or how that might might show up? Yeah. So Hebrews twelve is quoting from Proverbs three, verses eleven and twelve. But Hebrews 12 is quoting from the Septuagint, which reads a little different than the Hebrew. So, my son, do not take lightly the discipline of Adonai that's in accordance with the Hebrew, or lose heart when you're corrected by him, because Adonai disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he accepts. The Hebrew says, like a father, the son in whom he delights, but with a different arranging of the consonants and vowels you could come up with, and he punishes or causes pain for every, every son that he accepts. The question is, how does he discipline us? How does he, quote, cause pain or punish? Well, certainly we all know that the Lord knows how to put us under internal pressure, right? That, that he knows how to make us miserable when we're unrepentant or, or break us and humble us. So in that sense, I've certainly been disciplined by the Lord. Sometimes there can be a public correction, which is very humiliating, but it's the discipline of the Lord. You take it. Sometimes you could be irresponsible in your job because of which you get fired. And that was the discipline of the Lord in the midst of it. Is it possible that he disciplines his children with physical sickness? Well, Job was attacked by Satan uh, under the approval of God, but that was not God disciplining Job. Job was not suffering because of his sin. He ended up sinning because he was suffering, as, as some have put it. But the idea that you got sick because you're being disciplined by God, you just got to be very careful in holding to that because God reveals himself as, as our healer. And sickness and disease can come as a judgment. So I would look at Deuteronomy 8, where it mentions how God humbles us as a pattern of discipline. It's possible he could discipline through sickness and disease. The Psalms might indicate that. I don't look at that as his normal dealing, though. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. One, one last thing about discipline of sickness. You have, for example, in Psalm 6 or Psalm 30, Psalm 41, a recognition that sickness, disease are connected with sin. And the prayer is, don't, don't be angry with me. Don't rebuke me in your anger. So uh, discipline me in your love. Don't rebuke me in your anger. Now, it's possible that someone violates the statute of God as a result of which they find themselves sick and God could be working discipline in the midst of that. But I've not experienced that in my own life. What I have experienced is a loss of an opportunity I had, uh, a revenue source that I was expecting getting cut off, God getting my attention saying that was because of disobedience or, or most commonly just that holy pressure in my life and uh, bringing me low and, and a, a, a humbling and a breaking and then sometimes, like I say, maybe a door that was open to do something and it closed. And the Lord's saying, that's, that's because you blew it and, and you need to grow here. 
And and it's all for our good, though. The key thing is it's all for our good. But I'd be very careful if, before I tell someone, well, you're sick because the Lord's disciplining you. I'd, I'd be very careful with that. Thank you, CJ, for an important question. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Madera, California. Michael, welcome to the line of fire. Hello. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you. All right. Now, um, I was listening to one of your in between the uh, in between the programs when you were talking about the apostles, mm-hmm. and I I noticed it was similar to to what I've come to believe, but I haven't heard anyone else kind of kind of uh, uh, look at it this way. And to explain myself, I had I wanted to find out okay what's an apostle because I hear all these guys running around saying I'm an apostle this apostle that and try to make people bow down to them or whatnot. And when I read about what the apostles were doing in the book of Acts, I noticed a big similarity between missionaries, church planting missionaries, and the original apostles. And then I noticed that Barnabas was called an apostle. And I'm like, how is he an apostle if there's yes, only sir. 12? Yes, sir. So I began to, to, I went into the etymology of the word and kind of find out that missionary coming from the Latin missionarius has the exact same definition as apostolos in the Greek. And so yep, I, some, I came to sent, the conclusion. Yeah, someone sent on a mission. Yep. Right. So uh, I I came to the conclusion that an apostle was a missionary, and a missionary is an apostle. There's only twelve apostles of the Lamb who Jesus sent Himself. That they'll never be again to the foundation of the church, but they're still apostles today. We we just call them missionaries, and we send them out there to do the exact same work: planting churches, preaching yep. the gospel where no one else is preached. And that's the conclusion that I came to, and I and I, I feel it's probably the safest one. Yeah, and I've but, also noticed that the apostles only use authority over the churches that they actually planted themselves, as far as that went. Right. So, so a, f- a few things to to clear up. Very, very, very good, Michael. Not every missionary is an apostle in that sense, in that you know missionaries can have various functions and serve in various capacities. But those that are are pioneers. It could be in a city. It could be overseas. Those that become fathers and multiply works so that they become a, a father to other leaders. Uh, those that that break virgin ground and multiply works in various areas. That to me is all apostolic ministry for sure. And that's why I say, as I understand it, Hudson Taylor was an apostle, and and William Booth was an apostle, and my friend Yesupadam in India planted over 7,000 churches in tribal regions and has pioneered new works in, in several different nations. Uh, he's, he's an apostle. Uh, but all of these people would understand that their authority is within their sphere of influence and responsibility. So this notion Amen. that if, if, I'm, if I believe I'm the apostle of Madera, California, that all the churches in Madera have to look to me, that's, that's abusive. That's unbiblical. Yeah. That's abusive. And the other thing is, uh, apostles, because of the work they do, are uniquely identified with Jesus, which means service and sacrifice and suffering. I don't, I don't mean that you have to be poor or in jail to be an apostle, but it's a matter of getting low and serving others and, and having that authority. And, and Michael, the view that, that you've come to and the view that I've come to, that many others would see it. The same way, so the the twelve are unique, and they have authority, and they wrote scripture different than anybody else that followed them. But others, like Barnabas, Acts fourteen fourteen, perfect example, and several others of the New Testament are also called apostles. The early church didn't seem to use that terminology as much, lest it would be confused with the twelve. 
But as long as we understand the 12th, that's them. Let's call the others emissaries. You know, this, these ones sent out on a mission. Yeah, absolutely. Many people doing apostolic work for the glory of God around the world today. Thank you, sir. God bless. Keep up the good studies, man. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Vershawn in Brazil, Indiana. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thank you, Dr. Brown. God bless you, and I uh, hope you have a happy new year. Yes, you too. Thank you. Well, my question was in regards to apologetics, and it kind of goes back to uh, the call with a, uh, from a caller earlier, Jacob. Yes. And, uh, in terms of approaching, um, you know, um, apologetics and people in the church and the way that they've abused it or uh, not used it, uh, you know, making it exclusive and not exclusive. You know, you, you explain the basis of the gospel, you know, and uh, how not to defer from it. And uh, so I just had a question in regards to, like, Molinism and uh, God's middle knowledge and, and the way that we can use that in apologetics and uh, how, you know, some say that you can't use um, uh, certain means to come to uh, uh, helping people uh, see that Jesus is the Lord. And, um, you know, in Molinism, you know, you would use something like uh, there is a possible— possible worlds that God will have somebody, everybody be saved, but it's not plausible in, in meaning that that possible world would force people and believing in Jesus. But the world that we have now is uh, God gave us free will. So um, it's not possible that everybody would believe. Do you know what I, you see what I'm coming from? Yeah. So uh, a couple of things, of course, uh, William Lane Craig would be a proponent of, of Molinism and, and the concept of middle knowledge. My, my dear friend and colleague, Dr. James White, would strenuously differ with that. What, what I would say, not, not commenting specifically on that, because I am, I'm personally weaker on some of the philosophical debates about the foreknowledge of God and things like that, and, and I leave it to the, to the others to kind of battle over that. Uh, but my emphasis would be this, sir that all truth is God's truth, right? That, that if, if something is true, then it, it rings true with God. And in that sense, God owns it because it's, it's true. So two plus two equals four is not just mathematics. That is truth that God owns. So whatever yeah. truth I can find in the realm of philosophy, in the realm of science, in the realm of, of, the arts and the, wherever it is, if if yes. there is truth and I can use that truth to help someone understand the nature and character of God, I'll do that. Now, I know that there's divine power in the gospel. So as I, as I preach the gospel and quote scripture, there's divine power in that. And the Holy Spirit convicts. In the midst of me, my doing that, though, I may also engage someone in conversation and use logic which in that sense, if, if it's conveying truthful analogies and arguments is, is God's logic, I'll use that to get someone thinking, to get them going in a direction where they're open to hear more, understanding it's ultimately only the gospel that's saved. So in that sense, many people would say that apologetics is pre-evangelism. It is preparing the way through rational thought and argument to get someone to the point of listening to the rest of the message, and then it's the power of the gospel that saves. And then also, once someone is saved and they have arguments, many times using the truth, using logic, 
finding finding truth wherever it is in society and learning, I can use that to help buttress someone's faith and strengthen their faith. So I, I hope that's helpful. I want to try to grab one more call, but I, I hope that is helpful to you. There's the whole debate between classical apologetics and presuppositional and so on. Just no time to get into that now. But we'll grab one last call in Bakersfield, California. Andre, got to go quick, so go for it. Absolutely. What do you, where do you see the Hebrew roots and Messianic Judaism in five years from now? Since there's so many uh, factions, every season there's like a new belief, and I feel like it's being scattered. But So in five years from now, where do you see the Hebrew roots and Messianic Judaism? All right, let, let me answer on three different lines, okay? Um, the Hebrew Roots Movement, I expect to continue to, to fragment, to fall into deeper and deeper error, to get more and more extreme, and to continue to lose adherents who recognize, hey, this is not what I signed up for. I was looking for the Jewish roots of the faith and ended up in some kind of cult. But I, I expect it's going to continue to get more extreme, more dogmatic, uh, reject more gospel truth. It's just things multiply after their own kind. Uh, right. As far as the Messianic Movement... I believe it will continue to grow in terms of more and more Jewish people coming to the faith. And my hope is that it will go through a spiritual renewal where a passion to win the lost will, will become central again to, to win our people to Yeshua. And that we'll have a fresh outpouring of the spirit because I believe we've established the rightness of Jews believing in Jesus and continuing to live as Jews as they feel called to do so. But we, we need a renewal in, in our midst. We, we have established so much, but we need a, a fresh renewal. That's my hope there. And then fringe groups will continue to get more fringy within it, getting more extreme that you have to observe certain things and, and even start to fall away as a result of it. And then lastly, I believe the church will continue to recognize more and more the Jewish roots of its faith. So some of the things seem inevitable to me, just reproducing after their own kind. Others are what I hope to see. All right. God bless, friends. Have an awesome weekend. We'll be back with you. New Year's Eve, right here.